Let's open our Bibles this evening to Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10 and verse 1. It came about when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were within their land, that he, this Adonai Zedek, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were mighty. Therefore, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem sent word to Hoham king of Hebron and Piram king of Jarmuth and Japhia king of Lachish and Debir king of Eglon saying come up to me and help me and let us attack Gibeon for it has made peace with Joshua and with the sons of Israel. Lord we ask that you would illuminate our thoughts and our minds in this chapter, in this study that you would give each of us insight not only into your word Father but into your heart and insight into things that are to come, and insight and understanding, Lord, that we might know how to live in these days. I pray, Father, that as we study, your word would pierce our hearts like a sword, would go deep within. As your word says, your word I have hidden in my heart. Father, I pray that you would hide your word in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the chapter starts off with an interesting character in Scripture, Adonai Zedek, King of Jerusalem. Let's break that title down just a bit here. First time we hear the full name Yerushalayim in the Bible is right here, Joshua chapter 10. Now, we've heard it once before by its prior name, Salem, in Genesis 14. Jerusalem. 1400 years before Christ, it was inhabited by the Jebusites, and according to the Armana letters, it was the center of political activity in the land of Canaan. The name means city or foundation of peace. Interesting, if you go to Jerusalem today, you can actually see a wall that was recently excavated, unearthed, that's there in the old part of the city of Jerusalem that dates all the way back to the Jebusites. They call it the Jebusite Wall. And it was part of that original city of Jerusalem, 1400 years, so 3400 years ago. It's a fascinating place. I hope you'll be able to join us on the trip to Israel in, in the future. But it's curious that Jerusalem is called the city of peace, or, or Jerusalem means foundation of peace, because it's been conquered or destroyed some 35 times in its history. Each time the city was leveled, each time the conquerors built right over the top of it, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia says it's one of the ironies of history that a city which in all its long history has seen so little peace and for whose possession such rivers of blood have been shed should have such a possible meaning for its name. A city of peace. Luke 21:24. Jesus says Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Interesting about Jesus making that comment about the times of the Gentiles and Jerusalem being traveled underfoot because it was just a few years later, 20, maybe 30 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, after he ascended back to heaven, that Jerusalem indeed was completely trampled underfoot by the Romans as they came under the control, under the authority of Titus, and they sacked the temple. And today you can see there on the southwestern end of the Temple Mount, you can see great stones that have smashed the pavement, stones that were thrown off of the top of the temple in A.D. 70. And ever since then, Jerusalem has been trampled underfoot 
by the Gentiles. Now Jerusalem's king in Joshua's day, again, is an interesting character, Adonai Zedek. He also represents an infamous caricature in scripture, that of Antichrist. Adonai Zedek, his name means Lord of Righteousness. But there was another Zedek, an earlier king of Salem, back in the days of Abram. Let's go back there a moment. Genesis chapter 14, if you'll turn there. Genesis 14 and verse 18. Now this is just following a war that Abraham led, actually he's still Abram at this time, led against several kings to rescue Lot, his nephew. And as he's returning victorious in, in sort of a, an amazing uh, story, epic story in scripture of, of a guerrilla warfare led by Abram, he's returning and it tells us that after this return, in verse 18 of Genesis 14, that Melchizedek, not Adonizedek, but Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was priest of Most High God. And he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of all. That is, Abram tithed off of the spoils of the warfare, gave ten percent to this Melchizedek. Now that's interesting. Because if you look at Melchizedek, and you compare him to Adonai Zedek, it's an interesting contrast. Adonai Zedek means Lord of Righteousness. Melchizedek means King of Righteousness. Adonai Zedek, King of Jerusalem, whereas Melchizedek is not just King of Jerusalem, but he's also Priest of God Most High. Adonai Zedek wages war. Melchizedek offers wine. Adonai Zedek comes against Israel. Melchizedek comes toward and for and blesses Abram, from whom all Israel comes. Adonai Zedek is wiped out by Israel in this chapter 10 of Joshua, which we'll get to in a moment. Melchizedek is not wiped out. He worshipped, or no, he is worshipped by Abram. Adonai Zedek is killed and entombed. Melchizedek never dies. What do you mean never dies? Well, keep your finger there in Joshua 10. Flip now over to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, where we learn more of this Melchizedek. This Melchizedek, verse 1 of Hebrews 7, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abram as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. To him also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils. He was first of all, by, the, by translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then also King of Salem, which is King of Peace. So Melchizedek means King of Righteousness. Obviously he's the King of Shalem, Salem, Jerusalem, which means King of Peace. But the Hebrew writer says in verse 3, he's without father, without mother without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. In other words, what the Hebrew writer is saying is that if you look at Melchizedek in the scriptures, you see that there's no beginning or end to him. He just kind of shows up curiously back in Genesis 14. He blesses Abram. He gives him bread and wine. He is both a king and a priest. And he typifies Jesus Christ, while Adonai Zedek typifies Antichrist. 
Adonizedek, a picture of Antichrist. Melchizedek, a picture of Jesus Christ. And some believe, and I would tend to agree, Melchizedek may very well have been in person Jesus Christ, a Christophany. A pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus there coming before Abraham. Because we see Abraham worships him, tithes to him. We see this, this person, this king of Salem, king of righteousness, king of peace. We see him bringing bread and wine. What is that a picture of? That's right, communion. Now how can we be sure that Melchizedek is Jesus Christ. Well, we can't be absolute and dogmatic about this. But there's another intriguing verse to flip over to, the book of John, the Gospel of John, if you'll turn there quickly, in verse 8, or chapter 8. John chapter 8. Let me read this to you. Beginning in verse 54, tells us the following. Jesus is speaking and he says, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I'll be a liar like you. He's really getting on the, the religious leaders, they're the Pharisees. And he says, But I do know him and I keep his word. Then he says these curious words, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And we're told in that moment they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why did they want to throw stones at him? Because he was making himself equal to God. Because he claimed that name that God alone claimed. I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. But here's the question I want to ask. When did Abraham see Jesus' day? When did Abraham come face to face with Jesus Christ? The only biblical account we have of such a meeting would be Genesis 14. Now I encourage you to study this on your own, but it percolate in your hearts as to the person of Melchizedek, who at least typifies Jesus, if not is Jesus, in the flesh. But Adonizedek, going back to Joshua 10, Adonizedek is a false king of peace. And he's worried. Jericho has fallen, Ai is waylaid, and now the mighty Gibeonites have entered into a peace treaty a covenant, if you will, with Israel. Adonizedek is watching the erosion of his foothold in the land, and so he determines to wage war, but not against Israel. He determines to wage war against the people of Gibeon. Joshua chapter 10, verse 3, going on, it says, Therefore Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, sent word to Hoham, king of Hebron, and Piram, king of Jarmuth, and Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the sons of Israel. Verse 5, So the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, of Hebron, of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up, they with all their armies, and camped by Gibeon and fought against it. Then the men of Gibeon, they sent word to Joshua, to the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not abandon your servants, 
Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. Now remember the Gibeonites. These were the people who had tricked Joshua and Israel into making a peace treaty with them. And now they're crying out for his help. Not to mention the fact that Gibeon was a hard 25 mile trek over treacherous terrain from Israel's camp there at Gilgal. It was 4,000 feet higher in elevation and to get there quickly Joshua would have to march his men all night long. And gang, listen, there was nothing in the peace treaty that required Joshua to protect Gibeon. He didn't have to. He could have said, I beg your pardon, I never promised you a rose garden. I promised peace, but I didn't say I would protect you. And it certainly would have been an easy way out of the treaty for Joshua. Most certainly easier, an easier road. Let these other kings destroy Gibeon. It gets it out of the way. What might you have done? Joshua. Joshua kept faith. He even saves an undeserving people. Doesn't that sound familiar? We are undeserving, we're unworthy. But even though we break faith with our Yeshua, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ, our Joshua, He never breaks faith with us. I love that about our Lord. He is always faithful. We're told in 2 Timothy 2.13 that if we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Did you hear that? The reason Jesus stays true to his promise to me is not because of what I do. It's because of who he is. He cannot deny himself. Which means we can take him at his word. His word truly is his bond. That's why Psalm 138.2 tells us he magnifies his word above all his name because you can't separate out his nature from his word. He keeps faith. So Joshua, he keeps faith with Gibeon in the same way that our Joshua keeps faith with us, though we are undeserving. Verse 7 of chapter 10, going on, Joshua then went up from Gilgal. He and all the people of war with him and all the valiant warriors. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So obviously the Lord is for Joshua, keeping his word. And I like this. These couple of verses here, it indicates Joshua is in conversation with the Lord. He's learning something here. He's learning to go to the Lord before he goes to the battle. Should we go up, Lord? What's your counsel? What do you think we should do, Lord? Now we've got a five-king confederacy here coming together against the Gibeonites who have aligned themselves with Israel. But remember, this covenant, the covenant that they made with Gibeon, that wasn't a God-led decision, though God is now leading them to go up against these other kings that have set themselves against the Gibeonites. But the peace treaty, the peace treaty itself, was made without the counsel of God. If you look back in verse 14... Of chapter 9, it tells us that the men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. So they're in this covenant. Having made a wrong decision, they didn't check with the Lord first. And it makes me think for a moment here, what happens when you make the wrong decision in the Lord? When you jump out there, when I jump out there and I choose and I've never consulted Him, oh, there's blessing in this. When you walk in Yeshua, in Jesus Christ... Romans 8.28, God says that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God 
and to those who are called according to His purpose. And that is great news. Did Joshua seek the Lord regarding the covenant with Gibeon? No. But Joshua did love the Lord. Joshua was called according to God's purpose. Absolutely. And God makes good even though Joshua makes a goof. Even though Joshua made this covenant and shouldn't have without checking with the Lord, God still pulls through. He still provides. And that's an incredibly comforting thought. Because I'm not always the best about taking each individual choice and decision to the Lord. I'm just learning to wait on the Lord. But when I bungle it, when I blow it, He can still bless it. In Joshua's case, instead of Israel having to go up against five different nations in five separate wars, the Lord takes Joshua's gaff with Gibeon and He kills two birds with one stone. Or in this case, five nations with a number of stones with hailstones read on verse 9 of chapter 10 so Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal and the Lord confounded them that is these five kings he confounded them before Israel and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and pursued them by way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda Verse 11, And they fled from before Israel. And while they were at the descent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Awesome. Check this out. For those critics and naturalists who would come and attempt a scientific or rationalistic explanation, if the hailstones fell, as the hailstones fell, there was no collateral damage. If this was a natural phenomenon, as some have tried to claim the, the happenings in Joshua chapter 10 are, and we'll see this more in a moment, some have tried to say this was a natural occurrence. Vilikovsky's comet we, we talked about recently, the idea that a, that a comet passed by and caused the darkening of the sun, which happens later in this chapter. And caused then, because of the darkening of the sun, that, that meteorites would, would have fallen on the earth. Well, if there was a natural, rationalistic, scientific explanation, there was no collateral damage. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying the hailstones only seemed to land on the enemy. None of the people of Israel were killed by these hailstones. If it's a natural phenomenon, shouldn't Israel have been wiped out too? Listen, this is a targeted attack, a God-ordained stoning. And remember, the penalty, the penalty for blasphemy in Leviticus was always stoning. Leviticus 24.16 The one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall surely stone him. The alien as well as the native when he blasphemes the name shall be put to death. And Jesus later he made amendment, an amendment to this blasphemy law. Matthew 12.31 He said therefore I say to you any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be, be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. This is the one sin that is unforgivable, will not be forgiven. Listen to me. Every other sin was paid for at Calvary. But this one remains. Why? Because it's an abject rejection of the very gift of salvation. 
Ephesians 1.13 says, In Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. Gang, speaking a word against the Son of Man. That is against Jesus was even forgivable. Jesus knew his disciples would do that in the not so distant future. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is tantamount to slapping away the hand that seals you. The pledge of your inheritance. If you reject the Holy Spirit, if you say that He is not of the Lord, that He is not God, that His Spirit is not God's Spirit, not the Spirit of Christ, then you're slapping away the only hand that is outreach to save you. And that's why Paul, I believe, writes in Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Now, a little rabbit trail there, but back to Joshua chapter 10. So the stoning occurs, the hailstones pouring down from heaven for a blasphemous people who do not believe in the Lord God. And verse 12 continues on, and this is fantastic. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Aijalon. And so the sun stood still. The moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. There is no day like that before it or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. And then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. Now, Regarding this book of Jashar, it's mentioned one other time. 2 Samuel 1, 17 and 18 says, David chanted with this lament over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he told them to teach the sons of Judah the song of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. Apparently, the book of Jashar was a Hebrew literary collection of songs written in poetic style to honor the accomplishments of Israel's great leaders. Joshua causing this, calling for the sun to stand still here in Joshua 10. Saul and Jonathan in their death to be honored. Now this book no longer exists. In fact, the only record that we have of its existence at all is in these verses here in Joshua and there in 2 Samuel. So some have used this to raise the specter of doubt as to the validity of Scripture. Some would say, how do we know we've got the right books for example, Dan Brown's recent book, The Da Vinci Code, which raised all kinds of, of a ruckus, especially in the Christian community. You know, maybe there are other Gospels that weren't included that should have been. And some might say, doesn't it bother you that other texts exist out there that aren't included in the Bible? And my answer to you is not in the least. You see, God is the author of the Bible, but He's also the editor. He knows what he wants in, and he knows what he cuts out, what he wants to keep out. In, for example, Genesis chapter 5, the ten-name genealogy, that seems to be not that big. Why is that so important? Until you read and study and recognize the value of that, those ten names. You Bible students, you remember this. Genesis chapter 5 lists out ten names. From Seth down to Noah. And of these ten names, if you take the meaning of the names and, and just write them out in sentence form, it speaks the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's amazing. So that's in the Bible. That's included. Out, 
the book of Jashar. Well, was the book of Jashar heretical? Probably not. It's just irrelevant. It's just unnecessary. It's not part of the word of God that he wants out and available for us. Galatians 1.9 says, As we have said before, I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. In Revelation 22.18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. You don't want those plagues, by the way. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away from his part, from the tree of life, or from the holy city which are written in this book. God determines what stays out. He determines what goes in. He keeps his word, and his word is able to keep you and to keep me. Praise God. Acts chapter 20, verse 32. I commend you to God and to the word of His grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. James 1.21 In humility we receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. But listen, for there's personal application of this as well. When it comes to my personal faith, guess what? God is also the author and the editor. What do you mean, Rick? Hebrews 12.1 says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. What does it mean for God to edit my faith? Okay, he's the editor of things spoken over you or against you. He's the editor of memories that might dog you. This is the wonderful thing about grace. The Lord is both the author and the editor of the story of my life. Joshua is a great example of this. Think about how he's grown and changed. His story authored and edited across the pages of this book. This is a man who God originally had to say, Don't fear, Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Over in verse 25 now, Joshua is going to encourage the people with the same words. He's going to tell them, be strong and courageous. Originally, Joshua had to be told. Now Joshua is telling the people his story. He has been authored and edited. And the, the, the stuff of the past is past. The stuff that is now, God has authored in his life. It's beautiful. And it's powerful for you and for me. My life is edited by the Lord. Those things that I did, the sin that's past, it is wiped away, wiped clean. It is not in my story anymore. My story is now a story of grace. And as Paul said there, but for the grace of God go I. Now don't miss what Joshua just did here. Look at verse 12 again. Listen, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of the Ajalon. And so the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. The verse says the sun stopped in the middle of the sky. It didn't hasten to go down for about a whole day. And my friends, I tell you, this is a greater miracle than the Red Sea. Cosmically, this is bigger than anything that has happened in Scripture since the flood. And there's a telling phrase here. In the sight of Israel. Not the miracle but the declaration of Joshua's faith. In front of the whole congregation, Joshua declares this, O sun, stand still. O moon, stop. In front of everybody, he lays it out there. 
Man, what, what happens if, if the sun doesn't stop? What would have happened if the moon hadn't stood still? What would have happened if the day had just gone on like it was would normally? And Joshua stuck his faith out there. And he's really putting it on the line in front of everyone. He goes on record. He speaks out his prayer before all Israel. He doesn't hedge his prayer in a whisper. He declares it before a congregation of witnesses. And I see this and it's so encouraging to me because there are times in my own faith life when I hedge. Why do we do that? Why do we hold the thought to ourselves? Why don't we declare what we believe is going to happen in the Lord? And I believe it's because we fear it may not happen. It might not. What if I say it? What if I stand up and believe it and it doesn't happen? Mark eleven twenty three. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. But what if I ask, totally believing, and the thing doesn't happen? Well, good question. What if it doesn't? Granted. Stepping out in faith. Taking possession of the promises of God as we have talked about over and over in this study. Gang, it is a risk. But the greater the risk, the greater the blessing. Consider the hearts of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel chapter 3 verse 17. They, they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I love that attitude. That is taking possession of the promises of God. It requires risk, gang. At least it requires a risk of looking foolish by the world's standards. But the risk can be as big as your life. question is, how much of the spiritual blessings do you really want? The bigger the risk of faith, the bigger the blessing that follows. You might say, but Rick, I, I can only carry so much. Then ask God to increase your capacity to believe. And start going on record with your faith. It was a huge act of faith on Joshua's part to command the stilling of the sun. Well, verse 16 going on. It tells us these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in the cave at Makeda. It was told Joshua saying, The five kings have been found hidden in the cave of Makeda. And Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and assign men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies and attack them in the rear. Do not allow them to enter their cities for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. And it came about when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished slaying them with a very great slaughter until they were destroyed and the survivors who remained of them had entered the fortified cities that all the people returned to the camp of Joshua at Makeda in peace and no one uttered a word against any of the sons of Israel why are these kings hiding in a cave five kings ran away from the, from the defeat and now they're hiding out listen the Amorites worshipped the sun and the moon it must have scared them witless to see Joshua speak to pray to the Lord and ask for the sun and the moon to stop and to see it happen 
And so they ran and they hid themselves in caves. It's interesting to note this is the same response of mankind to what they will recognize to be the wrath of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 6 verse 15. Let me read this to you. When the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us! Hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? Oh, in that day, as well as in Joshua's day, there will be those who flee to the caves for fear as to what they're seeing in the heavens. By the way, by the way, for those who believe the church will go through some or all of the tribulation that's beginning to be described there in Revelation chapter 6, listen. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 tells us God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And even the enemies of God, even those in rebellion, in Revelation chapter 6, recognize what's happening to them is the wrath of the Lamb. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, We have not been destined for wrath, but for salvation. The wrath of the Lamb is not for us. And the wrath of the Lamb, gang, it describes the first half of the tribulation. So if God's wrath is not for us, we will not be here in the first half of the tribulation. I am convinced. So Joshua, Joshua says, seal them up, boys, until we finish the job. We'll deal with these kings after we drive away their warriors. And notice the last phrase in verse 21. I like this. No one uttered a word against any of the sons of Israel. Literally, literally it says, no one sharpened his tongue against Israel. In other words, no more trash talk. No taunts or jeers, just peace, just calm. Just as the sun was still in the sky, so the voice of the enemy is now stilled in the field of battle. Verse 22, reading on, Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring these five kings out to me from the cave. They did so and brought these five kings out to him from the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachis, the king of Eglon. Verse 24 says, When they brought these kings out to Joshua, Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And so they came near and they put their feet on the necks of the kings. That's symbolic there of victory. Then Joshua said to them, Do not fear or be dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies with whom you will fight. And I love this. Joshua has absorbed the word of God. This is the word implanted. He turns around here, and again he quotes the Lord. The Lord said to him early on, Be strong and courageous, Joshua. And now Joshua is saying to the people, Be strong and courageous. God has written it into Joshua's story. His word is there. And that's what happens when the word becomes implanted. Gang, may I, may I advise you to combine your story with the word implanted. What do you mean? Your testimony, your witness to the Lord Jesus, may it be laced with the word of God, full of scripture, the scripture of promise of which you have taken possession. Verse 26, so afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. It came about... At sunset, that Joshua gave a command, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, and they put large stones over the mouth of the cave to this very day. Interesting. 
I remind you that there was only one king who was hung on a tree and placed in a stone enclosed cave who is not there to this day. Jesus rolled the stone away and he lives to this day. And now Joshua, Joshua is on a roll. And what's interesting about our faith is once our faith gets rolling, it's hard to stop. I remember playing basketball as a kid. My, my house, the home I grew up in, in Mission Viejo, California, was at the top of Saddleback Drive. And we had a big basketball goal on the front of our home. My mother hated it. It was a big eyesore. But my brother and I and our, and our dad loved it because we'd play basketball out there all the time. But the problem was when you were playing, if you lost the ball, it would roll down our driveway, turn right, and roll down the street. It was a very steep hill that we lived on. And that ball would go bouncing down the hill and there were times we had to run almost to the bottom of the hill just to retrieve the basketball. Faith is like that. Once it gets rolling, it's hard to stop. Now listen, as I read through the rest of the chapter, watch Joshua's faith on a roll. Verse 28, Now Joshua captured Makeda on that day. He struck it and its king with the edge of the sword until he utterly destroyed it and every person who was in it. He left no survivor. Thus he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed from Makeda to Libna and he fought against Libna. The Lord gave it also with its king into the hands of Israel and he struck it and every person who was in it with the edge of the sword and he left no survivor in it. Thus he did to its king just as he has done to the king of Jericho. Verse 31. And Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish and they camped by it and fought against it. The Lord gave Lachish into the hands of Israel, and he captured it on the second day, and struck it with every person who was in it, the edge of the sword, according to all that he had done in Libna. Then Horam, king of, of Gezer, he came up to help Lachish, and Joshua defeated him and his people until he left no survivor. Then Joshua and all the people, they passed on from Lachish to Eglon. See, we're just on a roll. Joshua is just fighting on. They camped by Eglon and fought against it. They captured it on that day, and they struck it with the edge of the sword. Note that. They struck it with the edge of the sword. We're hearing this over and over. He utterly destroyed that day every person who was in it according to all he had done to Lachish. And then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron. They fought against Hebron. Captured it, struck it, its king, all its cities with all the persons who were in it with the edge of the sword. He left no survivor. Verse 38. Joshua and all Israel went with him again, returned to Debir and they fought against it. He captured it in its king and struck that town with the edge of the sword, verse 39, leaving no survivors. And then verse 40, Joshua struck all the land, the hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left no survivor, but he utterly destroyed all who breathed just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea, even as far as Gaza. And all the hill country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. And Joshua returned all these kings to their lands one at one time, because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. So Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. Wow. The Lord has now split the country in two with the edge of the sword. That phrase we see six times in this chapter, the edge of the sword. The edge of the sword. Joshua has learned something here. You want to hold on to an edge in this world? You need the edge of the sword. It doesn't take much to keep our faith on a roll. You want to know what keeps your faith on a roll? Constancy in the word. 
the edge of the sword. Constancy in prayer. Day out, day in, week in, week out. Constancy. Long-term commitment. Sticking with it. Following through. Commitment, gang. It's not going to happen instantaneously. It's not just a, oh, I'm, I'm now a believer in Jesus, so everything's groovy attitude. It is a daily walk that we are invited to and called to. And that daily walk will sharpen our faith, will intensify our relationship with the Lord. And the sword and the Spirit are key to this. Constancy. Day in, day out. Week in, week out. Now, we've got one more chapter of Conquest. Chapter 10 showed us the southern campaign. Chapter 11 details the northern campaign. And then we'll see after that the listing of the 31 kings who were defeated by Israel. And finally, the promised land is divvied up as the promised inheritance of Israel. And we'll close out the book of Joshua. It's going to take us a little bit longer uh, uh, to do that. But tonight, I want to finish with this thought. We're not going to go on to chapter 11 tonight. Consider this game. Adonizadek felt his power and his control ebbing away. So he took matters into his own hand and it rocked his world. And it seems that the more I do this, the more time runs out. The more I'm hurried or worried or stressed or weary, the more I lose control and time ebbs away. Yet, here's Joshua fighting multiple nations in an intense battle and he realizes, man, I am running out of time. His army is taxed. They've they've run all night long to get to the field of battle. His army was so taxed that he needs to file an extension. So what did he do? Well, what would you do? Does it ever seem to you there's just not enough hours in the day, not enough time to do the things you need to get done? Why don't we take a lesson from Joshua here? What do you mean? Listen, fast forward 1,400 years to the life of a carpenter turned itinerant preacher from Nazareth. Jesus Christ. He was born to life on the shores of Galilee. Born to walk through those hills of Judea. He grew up a country boy in a rural area. No phones, no lights, no motor cars. Not a single luxury. He traveled by foot. When he slept, it was by ground. Truly, he was a man of the country. And to our way of thinking, when I look at Jesus, they're coming to to, to life, being enfleshed. They're in the Galilee. I think, man, Lord, this is the least efficient time in the least efficient place you could possibly have chosen to enter the world. If it were me, I'd say, wait until the internet. Think about the influence you can have with technology today if Jesus came as Messiah the first time right now. But listen, what appears to be least efficient to me ends up yielding maximum impact for the gospel. Why? Because the Lord is not bound by the clock. God doesn't carry a daytimer. He doesn't have a Blackberry. It's amazing, gang, that for all our inventions, the one thing we can't create more of is time. Time. The Lord says in Isaiah 30, 15, In repentance and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. Now, my friends, we live in a beautiful rural area, not unlike the shores of Galilee. If you've traveled there with us, 
But again and again, I see people running ragged, trying to get it all done in the space of a day. I find myself on that treadmill. But listen, we don't need more time. We need more of the sun. Joshua spoke to the sun and it was still. He spoke to the sun and the voices of the enemy were silenced. He spoke to the sun and had all the time he needed to accomplish the task. So my friends, if you're running on empty, if you're exhausted and weary, you simply need more sunlight. S-O-N. Speak to the sun. Jesus said in Matthew 11:28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you tonight, and we pray, Lord, that you will write these words on our hearts. Write this into our story author our lives and edit us Father so that we might be complete in you the complete man the complete woman that you have created us to be and Lord we come to you for the peace that you promise in the stillness of your son Jesus we take your yoke upon us we desire to learn from you and to rest in your gentleness your humility We desire the rest that we can only find with you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, thank you for doing the work, for going before, and for calling us into your rest. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.